The following is a conversation between Caroline Fines, the founder and director of Giving Evidence, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. During this COVID-19 pandemic, everyone is looking for evidence of what works and what doesn't. We all want and need evidence, no matter what the field of endeavor. And that includes philanthropy, an organization that is rigorous about getting it and generous about sharing it is giving evidence. And it's a pleasure to have with us its founder and director, Caroline Fines. Welcome back to the Business of Giving, Caroline. Thank you. Very nice to be with you again. Uh, tell us about giving evidence and the mission and goals of the organization. So the clue in the title, we work to get charitable giving based on decent evidence. And that means evidence about where a social or environmental problem is, why it is, who else is doing what about it, what is effective in resolving it, and about what the people affected by those problems feel about the problem and feel about the solutions that they are being offered. Mm -hmm. So we work about that in the round. So we work on a lot of impact evaluations and effectiveness studies. We work on producing more evidence for donors to use but we also work on helping them to find and use research that already exists mm -hmm. so for example we did a study a couple of years ago for a uk foundation that's very active in outdoor education and they said that they get monitoring and evaluation type reports from their various grantees but those reports are not very good quality and they thought there must be a decent literature, proper robust literature about what is effective in outdoor education. And I said, yeah, there is. And what we could do for you is to bring all of that literature together in what's called a systematic review. So you look systematically for all of the research that's relevant. And then you look at what does it say and the implications for that funder. And so we produce that for them, that's kind of secondary research, and that helps them to find and use the material that already exists. So that's, that's a great example of the kind of thing that we do. Yeah, that is a great example. I have spoken to a number of people about philanthropy's response to the COVID-19 pandemic here in the United States. Caroline, what would your assessment be of that response in the UK? So giving evidence works globally. We don't just work in the UK. What I am seeing is, I think, similar to what is happening elsewhere. There's quite a lot of change, like an impressive amount of change, I think. So quite a few organizations are making more grants than they do normally. Quite, they turn the tap on, basically. So the Esme Fairburn Foundation, for example, here recently made, I think, 540 additional grants, I think mainly to its additional grantees, just mm -hmm. along the lines that the grantees didn't have to apply or reapply. I think it was just, look, you're all clearly having a difficult time and have massive pressures. So like here, <laughs> here's some more resource for you to deal with it. So the people have turned the tap on and there is some change in funding behavior. Some funders have reduced or removed restrictions from their funding, for example, some have changed their application and reporting processes to make them less burdened. There's quite a lot more openness, I think, of funders being willing to engage and talk to their 
a grantee. Some grantees don't want to talk to their funder because they have 5,000 other things to do. They yeah. just want to be funded and to get on with it. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, I'm seeing quite an impressive amount of change. And rightly so, given that obviously there's an enormous drop off in donations from the public because a lot of fundraising revenue comes from charity events, all of which have been cancelled, clearly. Exactly. And then loads of retail donors have lost their jobs and the uncertainty and so on and so on. So it has to come from somewhere. The government has put some money in in the UK to the charity mm-hmm. sector, although in general people have been pretty disappointed with that response. We have a slightly bonkers thing here where if you work for a charity and you are furloughed because they can't pay you, you cannot then volunteer for your own charity. Really? So suppose that you work in a, let's say, domestic violence helpline. Uh-huh. Demand on domestic violence helplines has gone up enormously. Yep. So the charity now can't pay you because it hasn't got the revenue. So you're sitting at home kind of doing nothing. You are able and willing and keen to go work on that domestic violence helpline, but you can't. Well, you could do that. Well, I mean, the government says it's to do with fraud or something. Mm -hmm. Like they don't want, I don't quite understand, but anyway, it's kind of a bit nuts. What I have seen here is a thing called furlough swap. So if I work for charity A and you work for charity B, I can't volunteer for charity A and you can't volunteer for charity B, but we could swap. (laughs) (laughs) So I could volunteer and do your job and you could volunteer to do my job. It's very inefficient. It's a comparative advantage fail. Yeah. But there is a bit of that going on. Mm -hmm. In my own work, some of the donors that we are giving evidence deals with, so there's a couple who have, turned the tap on and I've helped them to make some additional grants to COVID related response that I don't think they would have known quite where or how to respond to that. And there's one company, I love them, who we helped them set up a giving program last year. They were right at the beginning. And six weeks ago or seven weeks ago when this all really started, I wrote to them and said, you might want to unrestrict those grants and you might want to think about making additional grants if there's any money in the kitty these people are totally new to giving they're not like your average foundation mm-hmm. staff at all and they said oh yeah we've already done that we've already given them the second tranche they only just made the first tranche of these new grants in their first foray into philanthropy and they were like yeah yeah we've just given them the second tranche already <laughs> i was like great <laughs> there you go beat you to it so yeah. with this significant change of behavior that you just described, restricted giving in many cases going to unrestricted, the application process, which takes a long, long time being truncated into a matter of days in certain cases, it's created an environment that you've thought about maybe we could look into it and study it a little bit and come up with some conclusions. Tell us a little bit about what you have in mind there. Funders have lots of behaviors. Funders often obsess about the question of what should they fund? But there are also choices that they make about how they fund. So I'm thinking of behaviors there like what size is the grant? How long is it for? Is it restricted? Who makes the decisions? So is it made by junior staff or by a senior staff or by the board or by some algorithm? What is the reporting process to be? These are all different funder behaviors. Yep. And 
we can detect some signs that those different ways of giving have an effect on a donor's effectiveness. We detect that in a little way, but nobody has any proper data and analysis about which of these various giving behaviors is best when. So for instance, here's an easy question. When is it best to give a few big grants versus mm -hmm. loads of small grants? Mm -hmm. Every person and their dog has an opinion about this question, but nobody has any proper analysis about it. And similarly with this question of whether and when is it best to give restricted funding. Almost everybody thinks that restricted funding is problematic, apart from the people who actually do it, who give grants with restrictions. But nobody has any proper analysis about this. And the current crisis, it seemed to me, creates a funny opportunity to do some analysis that might shed some light on this. Suppose our research question is, do restrictions reduce the value of a grant? Right. Okay, the, the impact that one can have. The ideal way to do that would be to do a randomized control trial where you take um, a load of equivalent organizations, let's say doing the same thing. They might be women's refuges or they might be back to work schemes. You divide them into two at random, half of them you would fund in a restricted way, half unrestricted, and then you would look at what their outcomes are and you'd compare. That would be the ideal research method for answering that research question. But that's going to be extraordinarily difficult to persuade a funder to set that up to, to persuade them to, to yeah. give out a load of grants in a sort of random fashion. Well, in the current situation, what we see is that, as mentioned, some funders are changing their behavior, but mm -hmm. not all. So some funders are choosing to remove restrictions on their grants and some are retaining them. And luckily, quote unquote, <laughs> lots of these changes in behavior are happening kind of all at once. So from an analytical perspective, that is quite good news. Obviously from an epidemiological perspective, for the purposes of this analysis, it's no, quite helpful. Right. It's all yeah, happening yeah. at once. So what we could do in principle is to find pairs of foundations who are pretty similar, let's say mm -hmm. community foundations, some of which have removed the restrictions on their grants and others of which have not. And we will be able over time to compare some of their outcomes. So for instance, one of the arguments that the Directory of Social Change, for example, in the UK, is making for removing restrictions is, look, your restriction is to a project. If the charity dies because of this crisis, then no charity, no project. There you <laughs> your, go. That's your, pretty simple your, math. <laughs> right. Your funding is much better off going to keeping that organization afloat, because mm -hmm. if it's not, then there's nothing to discuss. So that led me to think one outcome we could look at is, let's say, the 12-month or 24-month survival rate of volunteers. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So maybe what we do is we look at community foundations in the old days, like last year, the year before. We look at when they make a grant, what proportion of their grantees are still alive 12 months or 24 months later. And then in the current world, we can see, okay, let's look at the foundations who did reduce restrictions and who did not reduce restrictions. And we can compare the 12, 24 month survival rate of those two groups. Mm -hmm. Is it the case that foundations who reduce their restrictions end up with more of their grantees literally still alive a year mm -hmm. later than in the other group. Yeah, yeah. That's the kind of analysis that we would do. It's not a perfect analysis because of course there may be 
something fundamentally different about the foundations that have chosen to remove restrictions than the ones that didn't. This is a choice, right? They chose to do that. So maybe it's the more enlightened ones which made that choice. So we have what's called a confounding variable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And maybe the ones that are more enlightened are reducing their restrictions, but they're also doing some other stuff. Yeah. To make yeah. some other changes. But nonetheless, this is more data than anyone else has got. Absolutely. <laughs> it's all comparative. I mean, it's something. Right. I mean, so, I know you're in the very early stages of this journey. What's it been like getting the raw data that would allow you to proceed with this? Not difficult at this point. Not difficult That's good. Because, well, it's not that difficult in the UK and in the US. Um, mm -hmm. In some countries, it's much more difficult. So often foundations are talking pretty openly and actively about what changes they are making. And in some markets like mine and yours, there are central organizations that are cataloging what is going on. So here in the UK, 360 Giving, for example, is cataloging some and i know that candid.org is doing that in the states we are also interested in plenty of other markets including emerging markets and there mm -hmm. is a little more complicated precisely because the philanthropy infrastructure is less developed yeah so in india you're pretty hard pushed to gather data right now because they've had hundreds of millions of people on the move walking home across four states when that shutdown happened so fast so we're gathering the data that we can. Once the current mega crisis has abated a little bit, then it will be easier to go and get the data. We don't actually need the data in real time. Mm -hmm. Right. It's easy to get it in real time because people are making announcements and so we can log them as we see them, but it doesn't actually matter. It's not going to impact um, your analysis at the end of the day. No, as so long as we can go back and get the data eventually, that'll be fine. And then we will look at, for each foundation that we, or each funder that we choose to include, we will look at a whole bunch of variables, like their size and how old they are and whether they changed restrictions and whether they changed the duration of grants and the size of grants, who runs them. Is it a family foundation? Is it an endowed foundation? Is it a company foundation? What kind of entity is this? We'll log all those kinds of factors that might be predictive Mm -hmm. of some of the outcomes that we will look at, such as 12 or 24 months survival rate. And then we'll do a big regression analysis, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is absolutely fascinating. I guess we're going to have to be patient from our end and wait a year or two until the results come in. But it's really one of those things that is very much worth waiting for. It should be interesting to see what comes from it. Yeah, I mean, there may be some outcomes that we can analyze sooner. Mm-hmm. The thing about a 24-month survival rate is that you have no choice but to wait 24 months for it. <laughs> um, it's kind of a joke, but people sometimes say, oh, how can we speed this up? And I'm like, get a time machine? And we yeah, maybe. <laughs> or maybe if, uh, if, if one of the group just all fails in six to nine months, that might help too. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I mean, you see this problem with lots of social evaluations or lots of social interventions that people say, oh, my parenting program is supposed to result in better parenting all the way through and that produces more stable teenagers and so better high school qualifications i'm mm -hmm. like well you better have an 18 year long trial then <laughs> you, <know? laughs> right. so you better go get 18 years worth of funding mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so which sometimes those things exist long longitudinal studies do exist so in all probability we're not going to start our analysis of the survival rate for another year because there'll be mm -hmm. no point 
but some other outcomes like beneficiary satisfaction for example we might well be able to analyze before that yeah speak a little bit about beneficiary feedback because i know you've been a real champion of that and i don't think a lot of people sometimes appreciate the value i think you have always said the second best thing to give to a charity is feedback and particularly from the beneficiaries talk about that why it's so rare and why it's so valuable Oh, there was a really nice randomized control trial that I saw recently, which really demonstrated this. There was a group of grantees and the intervention was to, as it were, threaten the grantees that the foundation might ask for feedback from the intended beneficiary. So you think about the chain that goes funder gives to grantee and the grantee provides a service to the exactly mm -hmm. so the intervention was a sort of accountability mechanism it was kind of a threat that the foundation might follow up with the beneficiaries to ask their view of the grantee mm -hmm. and they found that that did improve the performance of the grantee wow and i love this just the shared... idea that they might do it <laughs> Yeah, somebody might come and ask, irrespective of whether anybody does. And you can sort of understand that. This is why we have traffic speed cameras. Even if everybody knows that some of the cameras don't work or don't have filming, but you don't know which ones. So the fact That's that right. they, they make yeah. you slow down. <laughs> yeah. And so the notion of beneficiary feedback, the logic is that if you talk to the people who you are trying to serve, then they will tell you what they want and what they need and what they think, and that will enable you to serve them better. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just precisely the same reason that companies talk to their customers and their intended customers. And there is no mechanism within the philanthropic world to force that behavior. If companies don't understand what their customers want, they will make rubbish products and nobody will buy them and the company will go out of business. So there's a kind of biting incentive on the company to gather that feedback, but there isn't in foundation land or in grantee land often, exactly right um because your survival does not normally depend on it so partly the work of feedback labs and dennis whittle and others has been to advocate for feedback partly it's been to share tools and so on for doing it so to make it top of mind for people to do to make it easy for people to do there's been some initiatives to provide funding for grantees to do it. So I know that the Hewlett Foundation and the Fund for Shared Insight and people like the Blaygrave Trust in the UK made some funding available for gathering feedback. What I love about this particular trial is that it looks at the power of the incentive, which it turns out was quite potent. So basically it's a good idea if you are a operating nonprofit to talk to your grantee, to your intended beneficiaries. And equally, it's a good idea if you are a funder or a foundation to talk to your grantees in a really open way about what do they want and what do they think of what you're giving them. Often, one has to be quite clever about how you do that because people are unlikely to bite the hand that feeds them. Exactly right. Exactly so you have right. to do it in a safe and often anonymized way. Mm -hmm. Caroline, you advise donors all over the world about their giving. Would you have any general pieces of advice for listeners about things that they should keep in mind before they make a contribution? Yes, I wrote a whole book about that. <laughs> I, I do know that um, and I read it. <laughs> <laughs> the key problem, I suppose, is that what you really want is to find organizations for which there is decent independent evidence that they are effective. And that is very scarce 
a good easy route is to give to things that are recommended by or funded by somebody who will have done their analysis properly. So GiveWell is an example. I'm involved with the Life You Can Save set up by the ethicist Peter Singer that recommends right. charities. That's an example. We are doing some work with the various What Work centres in the UK and some other organisations that produce independent analysis who have identified effective interventions. So what's effective in reducing crime, effective in early intervention, effective in education, for example. There are sometimes you can fund those sorts of things. Or you can just copy someone else's homework. I call this the invest like Warren Buffett strategy. Yeah. So if you and I do this, it's that you want to give to something in some country or some sector that you don't know anything about, like give to what Gates is giving to, for example, because yeah. they'd have thought about it. Or give to what, in this country, the Gatsby Foundation is mm-hmm. giving to. David Sainsbury's, like they'll have thought about it. <laughs> yeah, so you yeah. can just kind of piggyback off the work that someone else has done. And often they publish their list. In international development, look at what Hewlett Foundation is giving to. They publish their list and Hewlett really think about it. And they have extremely sensible sets of grantees. Echidna, for example, in education, there are some others. But that's the easiest way of finding good organizations. Mm -hmm. Great advice. Finally, Caroline, what do you think the impact of this pandemic is going to have on the sector. First, how philanthropists maybe go about and think about their giving and do their giving. And secondly, what nonprofits are going to have to do in order to to survive and then thrive in the future. Well, I don't know. This whole pandemic makes me think a lot about that old quote about technology, which I think was said about the coming of the railways in the 19th century that the impact of technology is typically overestimated in the short term and underestimated in the long term. Yeah. And that was very abundantly evident when the internet started, for example, mm-hmm. is that people thought that all shops would close, for example, mm-hmm. because everybody would buy everything online, which is an overestimate. But the thing that people missed was how the internet would create a giant transfer of power from big companies and big institutions, including politicians, to the people, the kind of democratizing effect. So the rise of TripAdvisor and the review sites and social media and the effect that's had on politics, for example. And I think of the virus in a way a bit like that, that we can guess now at what some of the effects will be, but I suspect that we will overestimate those, the effects of the things that we can see. Uh And I suspect that we will underestimate the longer term effects. So for example, I think it's quite easy to say now, oh, there'll be no more offices in which people just do desk jobs because everybody will work from home and we'll all be on Zoom all the time. That I bet that is an overestimate, actually. Yeah, I think you're right. We do end up but I bet there are other effects that we would underestimate currently that we can't really see. So, for example, there was an article I read last week about the effects of previous epidemics on urban design. So, in America, your cities are much more laid out on a grid system than ours. You have more straight roads than we do. Mm-hmm. If you come to London, or I used to live in Paris and Vienna, like the old cities don't have that. And part of the reason that newer cities are laid out in our grid is that post cholera, the need to have better sanitation. So, you need long pipes 
and yeah. long pipes work better down straight roads. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, yeah. who would think that a disease would end up influencing how your streets are laid out? Exactly. So basically, I'm kind of dodging the question because I don't think that we know, and I don't think that it is that useful a conjecture. Clearly, there's going to be a giant recession after this. Mm -hmm. So over the next, I don't know, five, six, seven, whatever it is, years that it takes to pull out of the economic effects of this, there will be the classic horrible twins of a rise in demand and need for charities services. I mentioned domestic violence already, but many other things. The rise in demand combined with reduction in supply. So mm -hmm. reduction in supply of money from individual donors, from companies, from governments. So I think that means that the onus on endowed foundations and wealthy individuals really goes up. And I hope that they step up to that. Step up, yeah. We'll see loads of nonprofits go out of business. So we'll see loads more mergers. So a possible thing that we might see is a rise in voluntary mergers, if you see what I mean, that are not mm -hmm. just kind of shotgun marriages. But beyond that, I would think it's really hard to say. It's very clear there's going to be a massive inequality issue because this pandemic is affecting poorer communities and particularly people of colour. Oh, much my goodness. worse because of the social determinants of health but also because of this virus's particular effect i think it's particularly strong on black people mm -hmm. even once you control for the social determinants of health such as poverty and housing and so on and things like if you are homeschooling your kids in affluent families that value education and have enough computers for everybody then that'll be fine whereas yeah. if you are in chaotic poorer communities that don't have access to enough then education will suffer much worse so there's going to be a big inequality disparity and one of the effects of the virus will be to increase inequality one would hope that in 10 years time that's evened out a bit so I would imagine that charities will be enormously involved in that. But I think, from my view, we're in what I call the mega crisis phase now. Hopefully in six or 12 months, this will have abated and we will be in the transition period towards what I call the new world. Mm -hmm. And your question is about how is this all going to shake out in the new world? And I think we are two steps behind that currently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So well, you've had some pretty good insights there in terms of things to look for, and that's about all we could do at this stage of the game. You write about all that you've discussed and more on your website. Share with that with us. That's giving-evidence.com. And you will come back in a 24 months' time and tell us how this little thing that you did panned out in terms of who survived and who didn't. I'd be delighted to. You know, I want to thank you, Caroline, for taking the time to be with us today. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me back.